It's been said that a man can live weeks without food, days without water, minutes without air, but not one single solitary second without hope. That when hope is lost, it seems that life ebbs away. We are journeying through the book of 1 Peter together, and we are looking at a place of deep despair and discouragement or a place of empowered encouragement, a crossroads, if you will. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I want to remind you of where we've been. Peter is writing to a group of people who are facing great hardship. They have faced great difficulty. They are believers. They've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, placing their faith in Him. And all the way back to the book of Acts in chapter 8, we saw the stoning of a man named Stephen. And the Bible says that on that day, a great wave of persecution started. And so the people were scattered out. They were forced to flee their homes. They were uh, terrorized. They were brutalized. They were marginalized. They were uh, abandoned without any sense of hope. And some 30 years later, they're living out in these scattered regions. Read that in the very first verses of the book. Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Bithynia. They're, they're living in all these places, beaten down, pushed out, and struggling. And all of a sudden, a letter shows up. Peter writes a letter to them. Peter, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, one who had walked with Jesus for three years, one who had seen miraculous things happen in his very eyesight and eyewitness of all these things, one who was restored after denying Jesus and he preached at Pentecost and 3,000 people were saved. He'd seen the power of God and he writes to this group of people to encourage them. In fact, the, up until this point, everything has been about hope. He's just said, I want you to know who you are. You're chosen of God. You're elect exiles. God has a plan for you right where you are. And he has a purpose for you. And he's working out that purpose. And he's given you an incredible living hope. He caused you to be born again in Christ Jesus because of the resurrection. And he went on to tell them, you have an inheritance kept for you in God. He has something great in store for you. So he is building up their confidence. He's encouraging their hope. And now he's going to move them from hope to holiness. He's going to move them from their mindset, their attitude to action. And he's calling to all of us in the same manner and saying to you, you have this same hope in Jesus Christ. And because you have hope, you ought to live a certain way. And so today we're going to begin to see a move toward staying pure or staying clean, if you will, in a polluted world. As I mentioned earlier, many would look at this world around us and say it seems to be getting darker and darker all the time. It seems to be that the world around us is more corrupt morally and, and politically and, and spiritually, just devoid of any sense of, of real focused uh, spirituality. God just seems to be absent from the classroom and from the, the courtroom. And even churches today seem eerily silent on moral issues. And the apostle here, Peter, speaks to us with incredible timeliness. Let's begin together reading in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. And I'm going to ask you to do something, if you would. Would you mind standing with me once more as we read Scripture? 
In the Old Testament, when they found the book of the law, they stood to their feet as they read out of reverence for the reading of the Word of God. So this is the Word of God in our hearing. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of our God will stand forever. 1 Peter 1.13 and following. So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything that you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say you must be holy because I am holy. And remember that the Heavenly Father, to whom you pray, has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of Him during your time here as temporary residents. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose you as a ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, He has been revealed for your sake. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God. And you have placed your faith in Him and hope in God because He raised Christ from the dead and gave Him great glory. May God... Honor the reading of his word and add blessing. You may be seated. The central point of all of this text is right there in the beginning, but it's sandwiched in between a command. The command is prepare your mind for action. Exercise self-control. But here's the central point. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. He says, put all of your hope in Jesus Christ. Having said that, get ready. You better put your seatbelt on and prepare yourself for action. Think about this mindset of hope with me for a moment, if you will. When people lose hope, they give up. When stories have come back from the battlefield, soldiers in prisoner of war camps have literally been described as dying almost within the day that they gave up hope. When spouses lose hope, they give up on their marriage. Parents sometimes give up on their teenagers. Leaders sometimes give up on their people. And when they do, healthy emotions like contentment and peace and and, and joy are replaced with the toxic emotions of confusion and shame and worry disappointment. In short, it is impossible for you and for me to be spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, or relationally healthy if we do not have hope, if we're gripped by discouragement. In fact, I want to give you a quote. This was one of the most sobering things I've read in a long time by Howard Hendricks. I want to put it on the, the screen for you. Discouragement is the anesthetic the devil uses on a person just before he reaches in and carves out his heart. Those are strong words. Now look me in the eye, if you will, so to speak. I can't see every eye. Any of you today facing discouragement in life? 
Maybe you find yourself today discouraged at some point because of life circumstances or events. Maybe you found discouragement because of your job situation or your health situation or relationally with somebody else. There's a brokenness in a relationship or many relationships and you find yourself discouraged. Maybe today you're like these Christians that have been beaten down and and have tried so hard for so long to be so faithful and they've seen so little fruit come of it. I, I know people even today that I've talked to, even in the past weeks, that have said, I'm just try, tired of trying to be good. I'm, I'm tired of, of trying to be right and still just being kicked in the teeth by life. You know, these believers probably at some level found themselves asking the question, if I just put Jesus aside, would my life be easier? And at some levels, we said last time we were gathered together that their life would be easier if they just put aside their faith and said, Caesar is Lord, and they no longer would be opposing the Roman government and the empire and the culture around them if they just said, enough, and they just tapped out and waved the white flag and said, I'm done. Maybe some of you have followed the Lord for a long time and you're weary this morning. Well, I have good news for you and it's not good news that I bring. It is straight from the messenger that would bring this scroll from Peter into this region and he would say, I have for you hope. And I want to call you to that hope. I want to call you to this place where you discover hope again. You see, when people lose hope, they lose their ability to dream. They they lose a sense of Joy and despair replaces it. Fear replaces faith. Anxiety replaces prayer. And we know from God's Word, He says, don't be anxious about anything, but pray in everything. But when we find ourselves discouraged and sometimes disillusioned and even believing the lies as we doubt the truth, instead of praying, we fear anxiously. I put in your notes this very simply. The call for struggling Christians is clear. Set your hope on the future coming of Christ. But more than this, we are to move beyond melancholy endurance to positive engagement. You see, our lives aren't just to occupy space until the Lord comes again. No, we're to advance the kingdom. We're to push back the darkness. We are to be on the offensive. The Bible says the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. And no opposing army is going to fight with gates. We are pressing forward. And so as we press forward, we must do so with the hope of Christ central in our minds. A Christian who is looking for the glory of God has greater motivation to present, uh, for present obedience than a Christian who ignores the Lord's return. You see, what I'm saying to you, church, as I, I've given this as sort of introductory material or background... When we set our minds on the coming of Jesus Christ, it changes our level of focus on obedience today. Now, some would say that there are people who are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. I I understand that sentiment. But I know a lot of people who are so worldly minded that they never think of heaven. And when we set our affections on those things that are above, that our life here becomes a focused tool in the hand of God, an instrument for Him to use in obedience. You and I need to do this. We need to have hope. And what I want to do today is try to rally the troops, if you will. There are days it seems that the preacher is just trying to beat you up. Well, today I want to build you up. 
I want to encourage you in the hope that he's given. Now, you said, Pastor, that's what we've done for the last four sermons in this series. Yes, but now he says, put all of your hope in Jesus Christ. And in doing so, I want it to motivate you and move you to action. He says, I want you to step into this place of preparing your mind for action. This isn't something new. All throughout church history, believers before us who've stood in difficult times have withstood those times and moved forward. Let me give you just a couple of them. John Owen, one of my favorite writers, a Puritan preacher, it was said on his epitaph this, that while on the road to heaven, his elevated mind almost comprehended its full glories and joys. They said basically this, if there was ever a man who lived with an understanding and a picture of heaven, this guy was close. I love that. I mean, he was brilliant. And if you read of him and study of John Owen's life, those that would come after him would say his elevated mind almost, almost comprehended the full glory and joy of heaven. Let me give you another one. C.S. Lewis, perhaps you're familiar with him. About heaven, he wrote these words. Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which now we feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. What he was saying was this, heaven is more real than anything that you see today. Heaven is more real than the fireworks that you'll see this week. Heaven is more tangible than the pew that you're sitting on right now. Heaven is more glorious than the most radiant of all of the sights of earth. And C.S. Lewis said, have you ever felt like you were on the outside of a door and you knew you belonged on the other side? That's the Christian experience. That's where we are. And Peter was writing to a group of people that understood that clearly. They said, I'm so sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm so tired of the threat of sword and the threat of uh, robbing uh, me of my joy as I'm put to the test of ask, who is the Lord of your life, Caesar or Jesus? I'm so tired of being pushed down and pushed out. I'm so tired of trying to be right and trying to be moral and raise my family in that kind of environment and finding myself abused and beat up and beat down. He went on to say, and to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond our merits, and it would also heal that old ache. The the question then for all of us, everybody look this way again. We've seen that John Owen found hope in misery. We found C.S. Lewis, a life of difficulty and pain, and yet finding great joy in the hope that is before him. We see Peter and others who would look forward, even Stephen who was stoned for his faith, looking to the parting of heaven and seeing Jesus standing. So the question then becomes this, not can we have hope? in this life but the question for you and me today is this how can I have hope in this life and I am so glad that you have asked that question this morning because we have good news directly from our text fortunately Peter answers it for us he gives us two distinguishing marks of a Christian 
who has hope. And then he gives us five motivating factors. So we're going to walk through these very quickly this morning. Two distinguishing marks of a decided hope. Go back with me, if you will, to verse 13 for just a moment. And here's what you'll see. The first distinguishing mark of a Christian who has hope is a healthy mind. A healthy mind. He says, so prepare yourselves, your minds for action. Exercise self-control. Put all of your hope in the gracious salvation of Jesus Christ that will be revealed to the world. A healthy mind. He says, prepare your mind. Get ready. Now, I want you to hear this. This is a vivid phrase. It's a remarkably vivid phrase in that it literally says this. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, that may be strange language for you and for me today. It really is. Well, in that day of the Orient and all throughout the Middle East, men would wear long flowing robes, and they would often do so uh, against all of the elements. But when they got ready for battle, or they got ready to run, or they needed to be unencumbered in some way to, to do physical activity, they would gather up and bunch up those robes, and they would tuck them into the sash of their belt. It was called girding up your loins. Now, my legs are freed up to run. My legs are freed up to fight. I wouldn't dare think of going out and fighting with the possibility of tripping over my own robe and being encumbered and and tied down. And what he says is, your mind may be encumbered by some things, and you need to gird up the loins of your mind. Let me give you a word, and we'll do just a little English lesson, and maybe this will help you out. The the word muse, M-U-S-E, it means to think. If we muse something, if we muse over something, if we consider something, we're thinking about it. Now, in language, if you put the, the, the little prefix a, the letter a, it normally means not, right? If we have something and then we put ah in the front of it, it means not to do that. So amuse means not to think. Amuse. I think much of our amusement in life is focused on us turning our minds off. And you and I live in a culture where that's what we like to do. We are greatly amused by social media. We're greatly amused by television. We're greatly amused by things, and we turn our mind off. And the Bible is saying to us here, you better turn your mind back on. You better gird up the loins of your mind and prepare yourself. In fact, it's interesting to me to think about the society that we live in. We live in a society that is rampant with video games and pornography. And I began to think about this not long ago, and I began to think, men long for a true battle to fight. They long to be heroic, and so they're playing these false video games of war, and they're imitating real life. And they long for intimacy and real love, and so they find themselves drawn magnetically to pornography, and they're, they're finding a, a cheap substitute. And so they're faking love and war. And not everybody here is caught up in those kinds of things, but all of us are are very prone to amusements that take our minds away from ready to action and obedience. And for you and for me, if we're going to live this Christian life in ways that God longs for us to live and experience, then you got to gird up the loins of your mind. you got to ready yourself for action. Does that make sense? To about six of you, praise God. Does that make sense? Seriously, does it make sense? I hope that you see this, that you have got to love God with your mind if you're going to experience freedom in Christ. Peter has said over and over again, you are God's elect 
and you are in the midst of his plan, his purpose. He has a design for you as a mother, as a father, as a grandparent, as a, a child, as a Christian teenager. God has a plan and a purpose for your life. And he calls you to get your mind ready, to love him with your mind. So he says for you, a distinguishing mark will be a healthy mind. Those who distinguish themselves with a set hope are those who have learned to cultivate a healthy mind. In fact, he uses several other words here I want us to, to think about for just a moment. He says that that idea of our minds being readied is this, that they would be disciplined, sober optimistic, that we would be encouraged in our minds. But secondly, I want you to see this. If you are to have hope as a Christian in this world, in this present age, another distinguishing mark is a holy life. You are called to a place of having a healthy mind, engaged, girded, ready, focused, disciplined, and then a holy life, a life of obedience. Holy conduct is the second distinguishing mark of those who set their hope in Christ. Think about this with me. When we live lives that are modeled on God's character, we demonstrate that we've internalized His call for our holy inheritance. If we are set apart, it doesn't mean that we're just to be weird. It means that we're set apart, that we are otherwise. That God is completely holy. And I just must admit this. If I had announced all week long, I'm going to preach this Sunday on holiness, some of you probably would have said, I'm good, I don't need to hear that one. Not because you are holy, but because it's a topic that we think somehow it's not uh, germane to our lives. We think, I, he's not preaching to me. I, I can never be that. I mean, the pastor's called to that, the staff's called to that, the deacons are called to that. Brother West is the closest thing that we've got to that. I mean, holiness is, is way up here. And everybody, we're just, we can't do this. But this morning, I want to call you to this place of recognition. God, who is holy, demands of us holiness. In fact, we read that from our text. Two different verses. He said, you need to conduct yourself not in the ways that you did before you knew Christ. Don't slip back into those old ways because you didn't know any better then. You know better now. And because you know better, you need to get your mind right. Stop focusing on the amusement of the world and muse. Get your mind ready. Think. Love the Lord with your mind. So look at this. I put it on the screen there. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways, uh, satisfying your own desires. You didn't know any better. But now you must be holy in everything you do. Why? Because God who chose you is holy. So I want us to run very quickly now through the motivation. You say, Pastor, if, if my life is to be marked by a healthy mind and a holy life, why should I do that? Well, let me give you five motivating factors directly from our text. And you can read through this. We've studied some of it in Sunday school and we'll continue to. But I want you to get this in your mind. Number one, the glory of God. The glory of God. Of God. This comes directly from verse 13. He says, The revelation of Jesus Christ. And that is nothing more than a picture of the living hope that we have, the appearing of Christ. How many of you really truly believe that Jesus will visibly return to this earth one day? How many of you, when I say a statement like that, want to just raise both of your hands and say, Come quickly, Lord Jesus? 
I long for the day that our Savior comes back. I long for the day that I'll spend in His presence and I'll never fail Him again. We will be removed from the very presence of sin. We will be gloriously transfigured into the likeness of what He has designed for us with glorified bodies and we will see in all of His radiance. Oh, you just think that there'll be a loud boom tonight, a a, a crack and a a pop on, on Wednesday. No, 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 no. Can you imagine the fanfare of the trumpets of heaven as Jesus Christ parts the sky and enters into our world, visibly seen throughout all of the world. And the Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of lords. Hallelujah. And if we come to that realization, the glory of God ought to drive us toward a healthy mind and a holy life. I ought to live differently because I recognize the glory of my Savior. The coming glory. He says that you set your mind at this disciplined place of self-control. Why? Because you've set your hope on the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you and I center our thoughts on the return of Christ and live accordingly, we escape many of the worldly things that we encounter. Those things that hinder our minds. Peter may have borrowed the idea here from the Passover. You see, they were to eat the Passover meal in haste. If you go back to the Old Testament, he told them to be ready because when God tells you to move, it's going to be time to move. And they ate in haste looking for God's leadership. And later he will say several times, Christ the Lamb, Christ the Lamb, Christ the Lamb in this book, in this letter. And so maybe he's appealing to their Jewish heritage and he's saying, listen, get ready. God is about to move. And readiness for us means that we are are alert and disciplined and obedient. The the contrast is illustrated. We don't have time to go in depth there. But if you think about Abraham and Lot in the book of Genesis. Abraham was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. Abraham brought home blessing and Lot brought home judgment. Lot saw the things of the world and he began to cast his eye toward Sodom and he decided that he was going to set his tent toward Sodom and he was going to long for worldly things. Too many Christians today have gotten caught up in that kind of amusement. Their minds are not readied and they're not living holy lives. And because of that, they live without hope. And that means that when difficulty comes, And I've seen this. I've seen it in the counseling practice of my office, and I've seen it in the living rooms of homes where shattered dreams are occurring. People find themselves living hopelessly. It doesn't, I didn't say they're without hope. This side of death, we have hope. If you'll take these two fingers, everybody take two fingers. You can use your right hand. That's the one on this side, by the way. If you need help with that, place it right here. If, in fact, you feel a pulse, there's hope. There's hope for you to place your hope today in Jesus Christ. Hope. But a lot of people are living with such worldly mindset. They've not readied their mind. They've not experienced or thought about or looked at the glory of God. And because of that, they're not motivated. Now, number two, the holiness of God. The argument here is very simple. It comes straight from the text again. Kids take on the character and the expressions of their parents. And if you are a child of God, your life in a progressive way ought to look more and more and more like your heavenly father. There's a great set of commercials that are on these days. They're insurance commercials. And it says, we can help you save money on your insurance. We can't help you 
keep from becoming your parents. I don't know if you've seen those commercials. Well, there are some of you that are turning, I know it's your greatest fear. Some of you are turning into your mother, all right? Some of you are turning into your dad, all right? Stop wearing dark socks and sandals. Don't do it. It's not a good look for you, all right? Just don't do it. Say, just say no to those fashion faux pas of years before. Don't turn into them. But do turn into your heavenly Father. Do begin to look like Him. Do begin to exude the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience. And submit yourself to discipleship in the body of Christ. You see, our desire as a church is to help you walk out the life of a Jesus follower. And you ought to be motivated to have your mind ready, a healthy mind, and a holy life of obedience through the glory of God and ultimately here through the holiness of God. Let's continue. We need to move forward. Number three, the Word of God. The Word of God ought to motivate you to live holy lives. Look at verse 16. What a powerful word. For the Scriptures say, you must be holy, for I am holy. Peter goes back and he draws from the Old Testament and he says to them, this is the word of God. The call to holiness is not new, he says to them. The call of holiness has been God's heart from the beginning. It is written. What powerful language. Peter appeals to them by saying, it is written, be holy. For I, the Lord, am holy. He, he used the word of God to help point them. How did Jesus defeat Satan in the temptation? He used the word of God. How can you and I overcome temptation? The word of God. How can we fight off discouragement and falsehood? The word of God. How do we fight off deception? The Word of God. Anybody remember from your Bible school days? And I'm not talking about two weeks ago. For some of you, I'm talking about decades ago. Your Word have I hidden in my heart that what? I might not sin against God. The Word of God hidden in your heart, readying your mind. If you don't know it, you can't fight with it. It's a sword that you need to be skillfully prepared to fight with. And you're not fighting against other people. We don't beat each other up with the Bible. We fight off uh, lies. We fight off deception. We stand for truth with the Word of God. And for you and for me, let's stand together as a motivated people, knowing that the Word of God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. That the Word of God lays out a blueprint for your life. I, I said this just a, a couple of weeks ago on Wednesday night. You know, it's dangerous for us. Listen up. It's dangerous for us to call this a good book. You say, that's strange. I've always called it the good book. Well, it's dangerous because I've got a shelf full of good books in my library. Some of them have nothing to do with God. They're, they're good books, good stories. I, I would say rather than this being a good book, this is a guidebook. It's a guidebook for life that will guide you Godward. It will guide you in obedience. It will guide you in holiness. It will motivate you to live. When I read all the promises of God that are held for me, when I read about that inheritance, kept for me, then I begin to be motivated to live a holy life. You know, when I was a kid, I had a Sunday school teacher that shared with us that you don't want to be found doing anything that would embarrass you when Jesus comes again, because he's watching you. 
You know, it's kind of like there was an old, old show. I'm going to date myself, and about half of our crowd will not know this. But there was a show on television when I was a kid called Romper Room. Anybody remember Romper Room? And the lady held up her little magic wand, and she would start calling out names. And she would look out into this crowd, and she would say, I see Scott, and I see Asher, and I see Curtis, and I see Ricky, and I see Scott. And when she said Scott, I was scared to death because I was eating my Captain Crunch and my underoos on my beanbag. And she's looking through the television with her magic wand, and she saw me, and so I had to run to the other room. Scared me to death. That lady's watching me on Romper Room. Paranoia set in for a time. And then I went to Sunday school. And I heard, Jesus is watching you. But as I met Jesus Christ, I learned that he's watching over me, not to bash me. But he's watching over me as a loving shepherd that wants to bless me. And Jesus Christ, in some of your minds, has been one who's just waiting to catch you doing something wrong so he can smack you down. And these people had been smacked down enough. And Peter said to them, no, set your minds for action, exercise self-control by putting your hope in the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ and keep it there and do so because of the glory of God and the holiness of God and hear the word of God because God's word gives to you great and glorious promises. Let's continue on. Two more thoughts. The judgment of God. I don't want us to miss this and pass over it. In verse 17, we see something pretty powerful. You see, we as God's children need to take sin very, very seriously. He says, remember that your heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. Now, the judgment of the work of God here is not a judgment unto salvation. I was already judged at the cross of Calvary. Jesus judged my life and my salvation there. All of the wrath of God struck as a lightning rod upon the cross. But he will judge us for our works. It's like a judge at an Olympic event. It's the Bema seat of Christ that we know. One day he will judge our good works and give us reward. And the judgment of God ought to give to us some sense of motivation. That we would say, oh God, I want my life to count here on earth so that when I stand before you, I can present before you those things that I have done as honorable unto you. It ought to motivate you. I don't know about you, but we went through periods of time where we had to trade off on watch me duty. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Watch me, mommy. Watch me, mommy. Watch me, mommy. Watch me. And Stephanie would say, time out. Daddy is on watch me duty. So it became, watch me, daddy. Watch me, daddy. Watch me, daddy. Watch me, daddy. Regardless of what they're doing, we're at the swimming pool, I'm diving off the diving board. Watch me again. Watch me again. Watch me again. And we wanted the approval of our parents. They wanted to see they, that we were pleased with what they were doing. We, they wanted to see that we were, were encouraging and we were in some way edifying and we were building up and we were applauding what they were doing. We ought to live our lives in some way, that way, knowing that He sees. And so, oh, Heavenly Father, watch me. Not because of what I'm doing, but because I love you, I'm willing to do this. We ought to be motivated by the holiness of God, the glory of God, the Word of God, the judgment of God, that one day He will judge and reward our works. And ultimately, I want you to see this, the love of God. The very love of God. This ought to be the highest motivation for living. You see in this paragraph from 18 to 21, Peter reminds his readers of their salvation experience and a reminder that all of us need regularly. There are days 
I don't feel saved. Anybody here? Just be honest. You wake up and you have a hard day. You wake up with aches and pains you didn't have yesterday. And maybe not physical aches and pains. Maybe aches and pains of the heart. Maybe they are physical. And you say, I just don't feel, I feel God forsaken, not God inspired or God kept or God chosen. You see, you need to understand that this word redeemed, this theological term has special meaning in the first century empire. There were probably in this time 50 to 60 million slaves in the empire. Can, can you imagine being taken captive as a slave? Can you be imagine in the middle of the night with a foreign enemy invading soil here? It's almost too far in foreign a concept for us to comprehend. But can you imagine in that day being taken into slavery, being grabbed up and taken away and sold on an auction block in a country where you cannot even understand the language? And they began to bid, and as they bid, you don't know what's going on. You're shackled hands and feet, and you find yourself in great fear, in great turmoil wondering what's going to happen and all of a sudden one in the back speaks and with authority he speaks a word and you know that something significant has been said because everyone is silenced later you discover what he spoke was a figure and it was so astronomically above anything anyone else would bid for all of the rest of the bidding for that year he said, for this one, I will pay that price. And he comes to you, and he unlocks those fetters, and they fall to the ground from your wrist and from your waist and from your feet. And he says, you are free. You see, Jesus Christ paid with his own blood, not with gold or silver that lose their value, straight from the text. Your redemption was bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. That ought to motivate you to say, oh, Jesus, I'll give you anything. I'll go anywhere. I'll do whatever you call me to do. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Jesus, you've given all for me, and I will give you what I have in totality. Today, some of you are living life as though it were hopeless. You're living in discouragement and defeat. I want to challenge you today that the distinguishing marks of a Christian who has hope is exactly what this world needs. This world needs to see Christians that have healthy minds and holy lives. This world needs to see people who are motivated by the hope that's set before them. And what is that hope motivated by? I've given it to you. The glory of God. The holiness of God. The word of God of God. Hallelujah that he would give us those things. The judgment of God that he will reward us and ultimately and finally the love of God. That his love would motivate you to pure life and to hope. And I finish with this. I can think of no greater word. As I think of the Bible, the word hope rises up continually as perhaps my favorite word. The difference between a lost man and a saved man is hope. You see, the grace of God is offered to all. And so that's not different. But the difference is hope. I have an assured hope because he has caused me to be born again because of the resurrection of Jesus. We read that earlier in 1 Peter 1. 
today, if you're living in a hopeless situation, I want to tell you there's hope for you. Jesus Christ offers hope. Maybe today you just need to pray with one of our encouragers. You need to come to this place of the altar and just say, Lord, I I have lost my sense of wonder for the glory of God and the holiness of God. And I've drifted off in amusement and I want to gird up the loins of my mind. I want to get ready for action and live an obedient life this very week. Why don't you start today? I want to give you one more word if I can. You've probably noticed these cards that are up here uh, on the altar. I I want to make sure I say this. Here's the disclaimer. We are not leaving here today until every one of these cards are gone. That means when we begin to sing in a moment, Brother West, come on up. Musicians, come on up. These cards are the names of the counselors and students on this side and the counselors and children on this side, youth camp and children's camp. There's multiple copies of several. I, I'm not sure of the total numbers. I believe we've got about 21 going to, uh, to children's camp. We've got 15 going to youth camp. And I want everyone here, You can't. Not, there's not enough cards for everybody, but I want to make sure that every name here is picked up. So when we begin singing, you get up from where you are and you come grab a card. You may not have a kid in our youth group or in our children's ministry. I don't care. It doesn't matter. You pray for them. I'm asking our church family to rise up and to shed hope into the lives of these kids and students. They're going to go hear the Word of God this week, and I pray it motivates them toward holiness. This week, I believe we're going to see children and students saved, but I need our church family praying for them. So if you need to be saved today, you come. If you need to pray with someone today, you come. If you need to pray for one of these kids or youth, you come and grab a card, take it back, just pray over that. You're taking that card as a commitment to pray for that student this week. Let's pray together as our prayer partners and encouragers are coming this way. Father, we give this time of decision to you. Ask that you would bless it. Ask that you would move in and through it and that you would have your will and your way in the hearts and lives of every person here today. In Jesus' name and all of God's